This is the Roaring Elephant podcast for the 15th of May 2018, a podcast about how do you do and the surrounding ecosystem, for anyone working with or investigating big data and advanced analytics. My name is Dave, and here is my large and in charge co-host, Jan. Are you calling me fat? Um, in charge. Focus on the in charge <laughs> Let's bit. focus on that one then. <laughs> Hello, Dave. How are you, my gentle co-host? I'm very well indeed. This is the... Uh, Second time that we've seen each other this month with uh, previous exploits. With previous exploits. Now, people are going to start speculating what that could possibly mean, and we're not going to tell them. Well, we might do, but then again, we might not. But what Dave is alluding to is the fact that our audio quality is going to be a little bit less than usual, perhaps, because we are doing a face-to-face recording using our travel kit, Travel Studio. Indeed. So with... Uh, not too many weeks ago, us being at the DataWorks Summit in Berlin, we now find ourselves in the uh, same city again as we've been uh, co-presenting earlier on this week at Code Motion. Yep, it was a lot of fun. It was indeed. Good audience, good questions. Yeah, I think we did okay. Didn't hear about nobody complained, so I guess it was okay-ish. I guess so. <laughs> but speaking of summits and things, yes, we have a winner. Yes, we get winner, a prize winner. to give out. Indeed. So we've been running a competition for the um, San Jose DataWorks Summit, which is on June 17th to 21st. Yeah, raffle ran for two weeks. Yep. Everybody had a chance to promote the Roaring Elephant podcast a little bit and uh, get a ticket in the raffle, and we have pulled out a winner from the hat. We have indeed. So congratulations, Vijay Karthik. Um, you have won a free pass to the DataWorks Summit San Jose. Uh, pack your bags and get ready to go. Well, maybe not quite yet, but certainly <laughs> book your travel. Yeah, I will be approaching VJ. Uh, I think it's just VJ or just VJ Kartik. I don't know. I will be approaching the winner. That always works uh, through his uh, Twitter messaging in- interface as well. So uh, take a look. You should get a message from dear old me very soon and we'll have instructions on how you can claim your prize please don't delay too much because if you don't pick up your prize within a couple of days we will hand it over to the second runner-up which we will announce at that time so vj kartik j when you get to see the message get in touch claim your ticket indeed and uh, thanks to hortonworks for providing the free ticket as always hortonworks good, good sponsor of the podcast this way giving us free tickets to hand out to our listeners Indeed. And if you didn't win and were hoping to win, uh, you can still use the uh, the RAW25 code. Oh, the discount code is also valid for San Jose. Indeed, indeed. Uh, I think it's RAW25 raw or RAW20. We'll check and uh, <laughs> we'll let you know. Yeah, it's, I think it's RAW25, all capitals. Yeah. So I'll be tweeting about that anyway, so keep your eyes on the social media, which Dave loves. Yeah, something like that. <laughs> it's a love-hate relationship, I think, with a certain gravity in a certain sense. Yep. Anyway, finishing off our public uh, notice. Uh, public service, service announcements. announcements. Thank you. <laughs> uh, still about the DataWorks Summit. Dave actually noticed that the slide shares for the Berlin sessions were up. Yep. So if you wanted another to see another session, you didn't have a chance to get in or was conflicting with another session, then they're online now. Just go to the DataWorks Summit site and you will be able to rejoice in a lot of sessions. Indeed. Ooh, that was a lot of uh, public service announcements. It was. It was. I think we're true. That's already half an hour. I think we should stop at this, right? <laughs> 
this episode was a public service <laughs> announcement. No, let's let's do some news. Yeah, it's a news episode. Let's do some news. And we have done our homework, and we decided you go first. I think. I think so. Um, so in the the category of thoroughly unsurprising news, um, there was a. So this is a cloudpro.co.uk. Um, article that's referring to an IDC report. And this IDC report uh, suggests that less than 10% of organizations are ready for multi-cloud. <laughs> Color me thoroughly unsurprised. I mean, what percent of organizations are ready for hybrid cloud, standalone multi-cloud? I mean, what percentage of organizations are, are ready for for cloud full stop would be, I think... Well, a, if a you keep it like that, I mean, which percent of the organizations are ready? <laughs> I mean, you can keep making it small and it still works. <laughs> yeah. Um, but yeah. It, it, it's, I can see multi-cloud is definitely one of those trends that is mm-hmm. uh, becoming very much top of mind. I can see yeah. this is something that's becoming more and more prevalent. Um, we saw it fairly loud and proud at DataWorks Summit through some of the sessions, mm-hmm. um, keynotes and such. But it it surprises me not one bit that uh, the numbers are that kind of low. It's not an easy proposition either, right? Especially yeah. in the big data environment, because we've had it, we've talked about the gravity of uh, of data before. And I mean, yeah. actually, Dave's been talking about that, and I totally stole his his line now. <laughs> <laughs> but that's one of the biggest uh, obstacles for multi cloud adoption that I see. Because I'm, I'm in the Azure space. I mean, I live in the cloud space. And a lot of people want to do the multi-cloud thing for security, for not putting all your eggs in one basket to make sure mm. that if something goes wrong and things will go wrong, I mean, it's not yeah. never a question of if, it's a question of when. That's just how it works. You can mitigate as much as you want, but there will be moments that things go down. And at that point, you have to look at a way of uh, surviving that. And I would actually say that in my experience, the difficulties and financial money, basically money involved in having a true multi-cloud situation that has full disaster recovery backups, it's very impractical to put in place today. If Mm -hmm. you have a lot of big data, because you have to duplicate that data, you cannot have assume that you'll have enough time to move over the data when something goes wrong, because when something goes wrong, it goes wrong, right? Yep. And... Well, if you have the data duplicated anyway, then it's easy enough to do. Just spin up some VMs and start up whatever you need at that point. Although easy enough to do in infrastructure as code is not as easy. Yeah, as it, it depends on your definition of easy. Exactly. But uh, yeah, I mean, if you have a lot of data, it's it's quite an expensive proposition to have multi-cloud. Yeah, and the the other thing, of course, is the many of the cloud vendors will. Uh, push you towards accelerate you towards suggest that you use a lot of their native kind of Mm -hmm. tooling and componentry to accelerate your journey which is all very well but then in a multi-cloud environment you also need to think about whether that makes sense or whether you end up then using every cloud vendor's native componentry or you use something independent Oh, yeah, what you see, and I mean, I see you hesitating there, but you can just say that, yes, of course, I, when I when I go to a customer, I'm selling Azure, more or less, so mm-hmm. I will prefer that they go to Azure, because I think Azure has the best proposition at the moment. If I, if I didn't, I wouldn't be there. But if you go to the cloud, you want to go to SaaS and PaaS services as much as possible, when possible. Not, not all SaaS and PaaS are made equal. There's good and bad SaaS and PaaS out there on, on any cloud. Yeah. But if you don't take uh, benefits, if you don't benefit from that, 
you're really losing a lot of the advantage of the cloud. Very much so. And going multi-cloud kind of makes you not be able to do that. You have to make the, what's it called, the smallest common denominator of uh, equal services available, which in the end most often is the VM. Yeah. And going to cloud to have VMs running 24-7, well, that's lift and shift, which is a perfect way to move to the cloud, but not the way you should stay in the cloud. (laughs) It's a terrible long-term prospect. Yeah. So, well, the things I have seen working is if you have a disaster recovery solution where you have two different projects where you can have uh, active fallback and fallback active in the mm-hmm. reverse direction and have that way to cloud working. But yeah, I mean, if you go anywhere further than just storing data in a block store, you very quickly go into, get into trouble with, yeah, native uh, services. Yeah. And it's, it's a bit of a conundrum because, uh, yeah, I like open source. I don't like the, the vendor lock-in that this can possibly present. And not mm-hmm. a vendor, but a technology lock-in that this can present. So you should avoid it. I mean, that's why I like the fact that I'm going to do a little bit of publicity here. Just, if you don't want to hear it, just close your ears. But <laughs> the Hadoop service on Azure is just Hortonworks HDP in a automatic deployed fashion, which I like. I think is the best way of doing it because it gives you the least amount of vendor lock-in because any kind of scripting still works. Yeah. But uh, examples like that are very rare. Yeah, very true. So, yeah, nah, not surprised at all. Actually surprised it's already 10%. <laughs> well, less than, well, so yeah. could be one. And <laughs> well, also, it doesn't say, you know, how far they've got. It just says they've you know, started. Yeah. I do notice, by the way, that you get you pull up a lot of uh, cloud articles, and I usually uh, don't. <laughs> I, I just go where the news takes me. Oh, 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 oh. He's just a messenger. It's not his fault. Exactly. Don't believe it. <laughs> Anyway, moving on. moving on over to me. Oh, yeah, I found a little article here, which I'm actually happy to find. Uh, it's on Inside Big Data. It's called The Rise of Synthetic Data to Help Developers Create and Train AI Algorithms Quickly and Affordable. And it's talking about something from Facebook and whatever. I'm going to leave the, the, the listener to read it if you want to. But it's mostly the title that uh, triggered me because I've actually had customers doing this. But since I was under NDA, I couldn't talk about it. <laughs> but since this is now an official article i can talk about this and it's actually a very sneaky way of doing deep or machine learning training because one of the big problems with training a machine learning algorithm or a deep learning algorithm is you need to have labeled data i mean you don't always need labeled data but for most most predictions and stuff labeled data is what you want if it's more than classification and even for classification probably you need labeled data and sometimes it's very impractical to gather that labeled data because it's very work intensive or you just can't get to the labeled data and what people are doing more and more often and this is the first time i actually found an article that that describes this is to just generate synthetic data to train your algorithms mm-hmm. and there's been a lot of uh resistance against that because yeah if you're making uh, synthetic data you will have your bias in there you will have it's not real data it's not truthful it's not good and basically what these articles uh, now come uh, come out with is the fact that it actually works pretty well. Yeah. And again, uh, never forget that machine learning and deep learning, it's also iterative. You start with a model and retrain and transfer train and keep improving upon supervised it. Supervised learning. And- yeah, it's definitely supervised learning. And just being able to start with this can really give you an accelerated start to go to that iterative approach faster. It's just that first, yeah, that's the first level of your machine learning there, deep learning. Yeah. I can go off a quick start. So it's, it's actually fascinating. That, and then I, I mean, the customer I talked about, I talked about earlier, he's actually done this two and a half years ago now. And when he, oh, he came okay. with that, I was like, dang, that's smart. <laughs> <laughs> 
because uh, yeah, I was stupid. I never thought of doing that. Yeah, but it's it's one of those surprising situations where it's a relatively simple solution to the problem. It's just yeah, it, you it, need to overcome the initial. It's a leap of fate. Bias. Yeah. It's a leap of fate. You have to do this thing like this can never work. I'll try it anyway yeah. and figure out that it actually works. And that's how champagne was discovered as well, right? <laughs> just a mistake in the thing. So I'm probably over uh, emphasizing this. Maybe everybody out there is already doing this, in which case, great. I love it. But uh, this was the first article I actually saw on the subject. And uh, I kind of grabbed it to be able to talk finally about this thing I know about, which I couldn't talk about. Fair enough. So yeah, on to the next. So I now have an article from Quartz Media. And this is... Another one of the uh, things that I find thoroughly unsurprising, <laughs> but <laughs> this is the, so the title is tech companies are distancing themselves from big data. Oh, I do um, again. Yeah. Yeah, pretty much. But uh, it, it, it actually starts with the, the, the sentence big data. Once the Silicon Valley darling is becoming a tech pariah, that's possibly a little bit harsh, but the, the point I sort of really drew out of this um, I mean, I don't know about you, but personally, when I think of Google as an organization, I think of them as a tech company first. Now, and, and maybe it's just me and my perception, but that's that's what goes on in my brain. Yet the reality of, of this, and it's, it's kind of laid out pretty clearly in the in the article, is in the so in the first quarter of 2018, Google generated 26.6 billion dollars or in another way to express it 85 percent of its revenue from advertising yeah it's google is basically a marketing company that has a a tech arm bolted onto the side of it well it's the it's the old (laughs) adage if you're not paying for it you're not the customer of the product and what google is doing is giving a lot away i mean if you look at google maps say i I use it i admit that no problem it works brilliantly and i love it but the reverse of the medal is that Google knows every time when I leave my house in a car, they know exactly where I'm going. Yeah. I mean, you've got Maps, you've got Search, you've got YouTube, docs. you've got Gmail, you've got Docs, you've got Chrome. You've now got its you know, smart speaker slash yeah. And all the other little assistant. companies that probably have a foot in as well. I yeah. mean, they're everywhere. And the main reason for them, and same goes for Twitter and Facebook and Microsoft yeah. for a big part as well. I mean, we have Bing out there too, is to get your hands on that data. And that's also the, I mean, it's it's bad and good because on the one hand, yeah, it's especially in the light of the loss of the Cambridge Analytica and stuff. Uh, yeah. It's a bit of a, a, a dark note now, but they need that data to do good things too. Because if you yeah. look at the prevalence today of machine learning and deep learning models available for consumption, mm-hmm. even for free to a certain extent, the only way that they can build those models is by having that data. The reason that you can just translate a web page by going to Google or Bing and say, translate this to my native language, and it does a pretty good job at it. Yeah, That is thanks to that data. And there's no other way they could have done that. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you can do synthetic data to a certain point, but <laughs> <laughs> these guys have been doing this for so long already. Yeah. So, no, no you say you see it as a tech company. No, I've seen, been seeing it as a data company for a long time. Yeah, I, sp- yeah, I suppose I see tech and data. I, I don't see them as a advertising company, I guess, is what I really meant. But they, yeah, yeah. But they, but they clearly are. <laughs> they clearly are. But uh, the other, the other one that I thought was kind of interesting is here is uh, so there are a bunch of other uh, big data lunar is uh, uh, talked about here, and one what, of them big is big data loonies. 
luminaries. Oh, sorry, you didn't pronounce that correctly, I'm afraid. <laughs> um, but uh, so there are a number of them uh, discussed in this article. And the other one I, I thought was quite interesting was Netflix. Um, mm -hmm. And, you know, the fact is that they intend to spend uh, more than 10 billion on content and marketing this year um, compared to the 1.3 billion they aim to spend on tech. Uh, 1.3 billion. That's a big AWS bill. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but I mean, it's a movie company, right? And if you I look know, at the Hollywood, it's, I mean, 99% of the, of a movie's cost goes to marketing and, yeah. and, and publicity. So uh, to be honest, I don't see Netflix as a data company anymore because doing more and more of actual own production or just not just buying up new mm. old stuff that doesn't sell and putting it on their um, subscription service. I mean, sure, they still have a big part of, of data, but I could be wrong because I don't, I'm not a Netflix uh, client, so I don't have uh, the service myself, but they basically only use the data for the product they're selling to do the recommendation stuff. Yeah. We've, we've had a, a episode a while ago now where you could see that you do, uh, if you do predictions, you will use, uh, tag data, you labeled data, sorry, you will use social media to see what's new and try to match people in certain groups yeah, using yeah, the social yeah. media. They use their data for that stuff, obviously. That's, I mean, they're the, they're the poster yeah. child for that part of it. But I don't see them branching out in anything at the moment. And actually, I see them branching in by doubling down on what they know already to yeah. make stuff that will, again, fit the categories they already defined. So uh, I do see Google and Netflix as two different kinds of uh, very spectrum much of so. data. Yeah, very much so. And then the, the final one that's, I think, mentioned um, in any uh, level of detail is the one that you mentioned earlier, Jan, which was uh, mm. Twitter. Didn't mean and, to. <laughs> and the fact that, you know, while they do make the majority of their money from advertising, of course, the, the, the majority of their data is also, you know, public. It's, it's the tweets that, uh, that bounce around the Twitterverse. Um, so. Yeah, but the, I mean, you have to admit that the only reason for Twitter to be is to have a, a demo for big data, right? <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's their use case. <laughs> yeah. Dealing, dealing with a Twitter firehose as a, as a social media mm. first cut use case. Uh, didn't they close the files down a little bit more now? I think it has think been dialed this. back a little bit. Yeah. You need to pay for that subscription service so you can, you can still have keep, a little bit, I think. But keep Twitter profitable? Uh, well, I think on the other hand, everybody's using it for, for demos, so there must have been quite of a bloodletting there. Yeah, I would I would certainly expect <laughs> it's, so. It's going to be a CPU somewhere running it. But uh, it was just, it was interesting and not interesting at the same time. This article, You know, it, it the reality is that they are all still very much using big data, but they're you know, with a lot of the uh, fallout that has come mm -hmm. from things, as you said, things like Cambridge Analytica and Facebook and, you know, everything else that, that's been uh, in the current news over the last sort of couple of months, that it's, I wouldn't necessarily it's become a pariah, but it's been, it's become the thing that people don't really want oh, the oh. focus to be it's, drawn it's a, to anymore. It's a bit they, of want, a, they, want them, they want to talk about the value that they deliver, not kind of, how the ugly doing. side yeah. behind it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's the pendulum, right? It's the swing of the pendulum. When it came out, big data, we can do all these new things now. We do big data. Of course we do big data. And now it's like the other way because, ooh, bad things have big data. So let's not talk about big data. Give it yeah. another year, two years, it's going to swing back the other way again. Maybe, so maybe. that's just how it works. Because, yeah, I mean, it's... Uh, You've called it, I think, a, a weapon of mass destruction or something <laughs> like that. It's all about how you use it, right? If you do yeah. it in an ethical way, and I mean, ethics and uh, that's really a subject that's being on a lot of people's mind at the moment as well. Yeah. And 
by making it a pariah, which means let's not talk about it anymore, that's not good either. No, and it doesn't mean that it goes away. It's still there. Exactly. You're just not talking and about it. Just is- putting it in the dark only makes it worse, uh, yeah. the, the bad thing. So uh, I'm pretty sure I'm actually pretty happy with GDPR because on the one hand, it makes me give, get more work because a lot of people don't have to do stuff with GDPR. So that's always good. Mm-hmm. But it also keeps this uh, front end center. It kind of avoids uh, the possibility to just muffle it away more, more than if it, there wasn't a GDPR. Yeah, so, makes uh, sense to me. But uh, and anyway, I mean, blockchain is winning everything now. And now. We don't need big data anymore, right? <laughs> let's, <Next>. let's not. <laughs> Damn, so close, so close. My um, what did I have? I have, oh yeah, this was a nice one as well. It's from O'Reilly. It's a pretty extensive uh, article, actually. Mm. And it's uh, entitled Data Engineers versus Data Scientists. And we've had uh, a data engineer on already before who talked about what he's doing, and he was not exactly happy with my predictions last, last year. <laughs> <laughs> Hi, Marshall Jan. Um, but uh, this is actually a nice article to give you a, a distinction between the two, because there's different data engineers and different data scientists, and they will all not all fit in this role. But it's a pretty in-depth article on the differences between the two roles. And... There's some graphs in there as well. And the first graph is actually a very nice, clear one. Data science on the left, data science on the right. This is great radio, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> data scientist core competencies are math, statistics. I mean, that, that, those are the math guys, right? That yeah. have the algorithm, the, the machine learning, all this and stuff like that. While the data engineer is making sure that whatever that data scientist creates is actually landing somewhere that it actually works. So their competencies are more in the, in the programming development, the setting of data pipelines. So that yeah, the data yeah, scientist feeding the model. Exactly, in a secure, anonymized, whatever way. And there is an overlapping part because both ends will do some programming. They'll probably both be playing with big data or else it would be in the space. And they have some analytical skills as well. Personally, I would say analysis is more size of a data scientist, although a lot of the smaller things, and when I say small things, I'm actually talking like things like linear regression, machine learning. You don't need to be a data scientist to do it anymore because that's pretty much take a library, make it run. I mean, I, I read the analysis side of things as more more akin to basically recognize on the data engineer side, more akin to recognizing when the data that's coming in is garbage. You know, uh, yeah, things like outliers, uh, yeah, noise, quality. quality. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah, yeah good one. So that's the first uh, infographic. There's a nice one, and it gives a bit more explanation about what we just talked about, basically. Mm-hmm. But it's a, it's a nice, clear. I don't see much bias in there. No, it's it pretty. Gives, yeah, it gives a couple of technologies that's typically used in this space or in that space. So that's that's actually quite nice. And then it actually ends... Oh, yeah, before I say that, they also have a little section here when organizations get it wrong. <laughs> yeah. So I don't go to too much uh, thing there. But basically, it's if you make the, the, the one type of person do the other type of work, that usually doesn't end well because a data scientist does not have... Does not always. I mean, there are always exceptions. Mm. Does not always have the notion of how to put a real production pipeline in place. And he's not supposed to. Yeah. I mean, if he's spending his, and that's the other side of the, the how to get it wrong, if you got your data scientists making data pipelines, you're paying somebody an awful lot of money to do something that somebody else can do a lot faster, a lot better. Mm. So, again, that's also covered. And then the last part of it is actually, was also new for me, because I'm already having difficulty getting data scientists and data engineer out of each other. But they created a third version, a third uh, section, a third classification here, which is the machine learning engineer. And uh, if you see the graphic, if you're looking uh, to the web page along uh, uh, listening to this, 
then you can see how the machine learning engineer is kind of in the crossroads between the um, expertises of the data scientist and the data engineer. And I have to kind of agree with their thinking here, because mm-hmm. the idea here is that even though I just said that the data engineer can do some simple linear regression that's easy enough, there's also machine learning that's a bit more complex than that. But operationalizing, that's a difficult word, (laughs) a machine learning model is not easy and it's typically not something a data scientist will do. And if it's a pretty complex thing, then your data engineer will also have a problem actually understanding how the model works enough to be able to put that into, into place. Now, a lot of the time, the data engineer gets saddled with this anyway because, well, you do the pipelining, so make it happen. It'll probably work out. Sometimes a data scientist needs to do it, and that may also work. But I do, yeah, I kind of agree that there's a there's space for a third knowledge quanti, quantum there. Sphere. sphere. I was going to say sphere because that means it's more than one. It's just one. <laughs> <laughs> a, a third pillar of knowledge there. Hey, sure. Look at that. So again, uh, O'Reilly usually has good articles, and this is no exception. It's pretty long. It's a good read. reads nicely. And if you're in a company with doing big, uh, and you're doing big data stuff, and you have heard about this data engineer and data scientist terms being thrown around, you want to have a bit more basis, a bit more foundation to know what uh, what they should what they should mean. I think you could do worse than uh, take a read in this article. Indeed, as always, links in the show notes. As always. Okay, over to me then. Oh God! You again? Afraid so. Um, so we're we're finishing off the uh, the the news section with a pair of articles around getting getting machines to do things for us. Um, <laughs> to more or less success. <laughs> yeah, yeah, maybe. Um, in in my case, uh, so Tuesday, May the eighth, there was a, a blog post from uh, Google on an AI system for accomplishing real-world tasks over the phone, which is this uh, Google Duplex. And um, first of all, it's, it's, a, it's a nice article explaining, you know, how this all works. But most interestingly, at least most interestingly for me, they've got a number of um, real, well, supposedly real, you know, who knows? No, I believe but, it. But um, a, a set of real examples of Duplex actually making phone calls. So they've got uh, Duplex scheduling a hair salon appointment. Um, one example of it, uh, calling a, a restaurant. Uh, another ex- example of it, uh, elaborating on something. Um and you know further examples of it actually you know having more detailed conversations but it was really i mean i've had a number of um experiences with similar systems and uh, you very clearly pick out that it's it's not um it's not a human on the back end and yon assures me that uh, the systems are out there that are this good and have been out there for quite some time but this is the first sort of exposure i've had to them uh, in this sense the thing that i find particularly interesting is that uh, during the summer uh, google duplex is going to ma- be made um, available sort of basically through the google assistant so you'll just be able to if you have an android phone with google assistant on it you'll be able to just say um, get me an appointment at something or other and then on the back end google assistant will talk to duplex which will go and make a call set everything up for you and then you'll get a, a result return saying it's all done, your appointment's at, blah, blah, blah. And no doubt, you know, if you're a full-on Google user, then your 
Um, appointment will appear in your calendar and all sorts of other magical things. Um, so I'm interested and excited to give it a try. Um, obviously, we're here talking about some of the the things that are happening on the back end of that. But yeah, interesting, I thought. Yeah, yeah I was aware of this before because uh, a lot of uh, chatbot frameworks are underneath this stuff. Mm-hmm. And the whole idea of having chatbots talking with each other by using natural language so we can actually see what they're doing yeah. as part of this. Yeah. And the the Turing testers are doing on these chatbots have been going on for a while. And I think I remember, and I should have to look this up, I don't know by heart, but 18 months ago or something, we had Turing uh, comp- chatbots that were yeah. passing the Turing tests yeah. cons- uh, consistently. Yeah, so, yeah. And that's when this really started running. Uh, a thing you didn't mention here is that it act- the things that makes it real is, uh, on the one hand, the, the kind of senses it makes, yeah. which is just based on the RNN networks, but also that it's context sensitive. Yeah. And to give the example here with the, I think it was for the ordering the restaurant or something that the, 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 the waiter is asking, um, uh, no, the, 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 the bot is saying, I, I want an appointment for 4 p.m. And the waiter responds with, okay, for four. And the chatbot or the, the, the duplex agent, let's call it that, yeah. understands, okay, he's agreeing with my 4 p.m. And a bit later says, it's for four people. And the waiter again says, okay, for four. And the, 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 the duplex agent again recognizes, okay, this was an okay for this four people, not yeah. for 4 p.m. earlier. So having this context availability that's stayed in there, yeah, yeah. that's a very big uh, new thing as well. Well, new, that's what makes it really work well. I do have one uh, caveat here, and that uh, this is pretty much English only. Yeah. Uh, other languages uh, will follow at some point, and the most used languages will come first. That's just natural picking order, yeah, I yeah. guess. But I have seen already that if you just look at things like translation, and okay, that text translation is pretty good across the world, across the board. Let's say that works pretty well for most languages today. Yeah. But uh, text to speech, speech to text, things like that. And also the, the cognitive abilities to actually make context aware, syntactically correct grammar f- sentences, which mm-hmm. I probably can't do. <laughs> Proves I'm not that, uh, a duplex bot. Um, that's in English reasonably okay. I mean, it's, it's good enough to, to be usable today. Yeah. But in other languages, um, not I've, it's not there yet. I mean, I mean, I'm a Dutch speaker. Dutch is pretty high up on the list usually for some reason. Mm-hmm. The Dutchies have already they they colonize a big part of the world, I guess. So that's why it's a pretty spread out language anyway. Uh, Spanish is usually highly up there as well, mm-hmm. of course, for South America things like that. But there's also a bit of the the tension between the, tech, the technologically advanced world, so North America uh, and the North Europe. Yeah, those languages get a bit of a boost. German, French, and then the secondary reason, I think, is the the, the size of the language availability or yeah. usage on the on the on the on the planet. Yeah, I mean, you've, you've got, it's always going to be the combination of usage of the language and people willing to pay for yeah, these yeah, kind yeah. of services. But this stuff is out of the the, the development room, it's out of the playroom. It's actually being yeah. used in production now, and I agree that the little soundbites you played earlier are really advanced. They're really good. Yeah, uh, but uh, I've uh, yeah been aware of things like this. Uh, for a while. Indeed. In the Americans. So, that's so, me. Going from an AI system that actually works <laughs> to a little bit of fun I had. I just found this. I have no idea where I found this. It's, uh, I, I, do, I bookmark stuff and I think, oh, that's fun. And it's on uh, popular science. Sorry, popular science. And it's called, we asked a neural network to bake us a cake. The results were interesting. Subtitle, 
it uh, had blood in it. <laughs> <laughs> so basically, it's a bit of a, a fluff piece. It's it's fun to read, but it's also quite um, educational, let's say, because it's uh, somebody, I was trying to find his name, Janelle Shane, sorry, uh, on the 29th of March, a bit of an older article perhaps, but he just trained a neural network, gave it a bunch of online recipes, and then told the, the neural network, make me a new recipe. And if you look at it, form-wise, it looks okay. It has ingredient lists, it has pre- preparation instructions, but then you can start seeing where the limitation comes in. Now, this also was not a uh, one million node deep neural network, big <laughs> expensive thing. This was somebody just playing around with, uh, with uh, the technologies and looking at which uh, which problems he encountered basically. And one of the limitations was, uh, he calls it the amnesic AI. And basically the network, when it starts writing this recipe, it only re- retains the last 65 characters. Right. So once it's written a hundred characters, it totally <laughs> forgot what the first ingredient was. So there's a bit of a mismatch between the whole thing. It's a goldfish AI. And then also that context sensitivity, which you talked about. Yeah. He, that's also something that was missing here again, because it couldn't keep the whole thing in mind. So it could, it kind of lost the context at that point of sports, things like word salad come up and things. But it's a, it's a nice read to just see a bit of maybe not the limitations of a deep, a deep neural network, because it's not a limitation. You can overcome this, make it Mm. bigger, make it more sense, make it retain more. It's solvable, but it does kind of show you, you can quickly make something that works. Uh, just don't expect that the result will actually be usable in the end. So there's a difference between a neural network that works and a neural network that actually does something productive. Yeah, it reminds me a little bit of the uh, the, the episode we had around naming, it was yeah. like beer naming and Same gerbil thing. naming and things like that. Gerbil naming still worked out better than beer naming. No, gerbil naming and beer naming worked well, but paint naming didn't yeah, go well. Paint or context. Um, <laughs> Uh, yeah, I look forward to chocolate butter broth black pudding, uh, one of the ingredients of which is one sesame peel. I don't know quite how you peel a sesame seed. <laughs> that's but that's, you probably need some very, very delicate uh, cutlery for that. Uh, hey, the Nouvelle Cuisine, you have no idea what to do anymore. <laughs> and again, black pudding, butter broth. I mean, it, it does sound very British, I must say. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> maybe there was a maybe the, there was a UK tint to that particular AI. But yeah. There we go. Anyway, that were the articles. So unless you have anything else to add, maybe That's a final good luck. Uh, congratulations to VJ Kartik. Indeed. Do get in touch with us. That's we all I've got. Prize. And that is all the time we have for today. We hope you enjoyed this serving of bite-sized big data. We will be back next week with a new episode. Until then, please go to www.roaringalpha.org where you can find more information, including a feedback form. You can also follow us on Twitter using the at Hadoopcast tag and contact us by email to podcast at roaringelephant.org. Send any thoughts, criticisms, comments, and other feedback you may have. Until that next time, my name is John. And my name is Dave. And I look forward to talking to you next week. See you then.